as I was saying, you can tell that our, our readings this morning are about sort of good old-fashioned sin and uh, forgiveness and grace. Um, it's not something that uh, is a kind of a very fun or kind of thing that people look forward to. It's not like, you know, five steps to a great marriage or, you know, you know seven steps to healthy finances or that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, it is what it is. And uh, so to help get us into this this morning, I, I thought I might uh, tell you a story that came to me from my dear friend uh, Wayne Coombs this week, evidently a true story, of a bagpiper who, uh, you know, gets hired to play all these kinds of gigs. So he says, recently I was asked by a funeral director to play at a graveside service for a homeless man. This man had no friends or family, and so the service was going to be held in a pauper seminary. Do you know what that is? Or cemetery? <laughs> Did I say seminary? A pauper's... Uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, a pauper cemetery, which is, you know, where you're buried if you don't have any money or no place to, you know, buy a plot, that sort of thing. So in the, this is in the back country of Kentucky. So this, this uh, bagpiper says, as I was not familiar with the backwoods, I got lost. Well, I finally arrived an hour late and saw that the funeral guy had evidently gone and the hearse was nowhere in sight. All that was around were the diggers and the crew, and they were sitting there eating lunch. He said, I felt really badly, so I apologized to the men for being late, but I you know, was there to do a job. So I walked over to the side of the grave. I looked down at the vault lid and saw that it was already in place. He said, I didn't know what else to do. So I started to play. Well, the workers put down their lunches and began to gather around the hole in the ground. He said, I played my heart and soul out for this homeless man with no family and no friends. I played like I'd never played before for this homeless guy. And as I played Amazing Grace, the workers began to weep. They wept. I wept. We all wept together. And when I finished, I packed up my bag tap, my bagpipes, and started for my car. So he said, though my head hung low, my heart was full. And he says, I opened the door to my car, and I heard one of the workers say, I've never seen nothing like that, and I've been putting in septic tanks for 20 years. <laughs> so the bagpiper says, I guess I'm still lost. And, um, you know, some of you know that uh, one of my day jobs is I'm a professor of evangelism in contemporary culture at a few seminaries around America. And so, you know, this is one of the things that I have to think about is terms like lost. And I don't know if you know, but that has become a very pejorative term. Nobody outside the church likes to be labeled as lost. And there are studies that have been done on this, and I've done one of the studies that show that people just really object to the notion that I am somehow lost. Until something happens, like, you know, you commit a big sin like David did with Bathsheba, or you got this big political problem because people have come from Jerusalem into Galatia and are saying that you guys shouldn't be eating with Gentiles, or you go through something like David did as he wrote Psalm 32, or you have an experience like Simon the Pharisee did with Jesus, until something like that happens, we're just not sort of really cognitive of in any way being kind of separated from or out of phase with or in any way misplaced from God. And I mean, if you want a, a more benign way to think of lost, I mean, think of Luke 15 and the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, as we like to talk about it. Well, in that sense, lost isn't pejorative. Lost just simply means missing or misplaced. And actually, all of those things are valued. The coin, the sheep, and the son all have high value. 
But the culture just does not hear us that way. And so I think it's worth us for us to stop for a second and just ask ourselves, you know, wouldn't it be nice if whenever we got lost or messed up our life like David did, that we could simply give the old three-key salute, you know, control, alt, delete, right? And just sort of reboot. And there is something like that available to us. And that's what the readings tell us this morning, that it has to do with the love, grace, and forgiveness of God. Now, a week or so ago, when, when I was here with you, we talked about the beginning of ordinary time. And it is no accident that ordinary time begins with reminding us of the love, grace, and forgiveness of God. Because, you know, uh, the color for ordinary time, as all you veterans know, is green. And we don't have green backgrounds, so just think that beige is the new green, you know, for the 21st century or something. But, but green is the color of ordinary time traditionally. Well, why? Well, one answer to that is because green signal, signifies growth. And growth is thought to be ordinary for the Christian life, normative. It's not normative to live the way many of us and our friends and families have lived for years, and that is spiritually stuck. That's, normat- that's not normative. Spiritually stuck in the same ruts of sin, spiritually stuck in the same habits of mind, the same condition of a heart, that's not normative. What's normative is growth. Now, not perfection. I've, I, maybe I've said this to you before, but it's worth repeating. Just take perfection off the table. Like if, if, you're, if you're a Reformed person and you're worried about the Wesleyan doctrine of entire sanctification, just forget it. Trust me, if you get too close to perfect, we'll all tell you to stop, Okay. But for now, just keep heading in that direction because we probably don't have much to worry about, about one of us getting perfect. But if we're afraid that one of us is getting too perfect and is calling into question our Reformed theology, well, we'll just make that person stop, okay? We'll just tell them you're a little too close to perfect. But for now, I don't think we have much to worry about there. And what we, but what we do have is this notion that growth is normative and that transformation is normative. And this is, of course, what David experienced in Samuel. This is what he wrote about in the Psalms. This is what the woman at the dinner party received. This is what Paul is trying to explain to the, grace, to the Galatians, that something is here, this power is here that will help us continue to grow, and that power is grace. Now, we all know that grace, you know, if we were to do a, a little sort of pop theology quiz here, and I said grace is, and you all had to fill in a blank, you would all say, oh, I know what grace is. Grace is unmerited favor, right? Isn't that what most of you would say? But what does that mean? I mean, do you have any idea what that phrase means? Well, I guess, you know, we're all halfway intelligent here. We could pick it apart. Unmerited. Oh, yeah, I think I know what that means. I don't merit it. And grace. Oh, yeah, it's, it's favor. But again, what does that actually mean? And, and here's one of the things that so often betrays us in sort of a normal, ordinary kind of growth is let's take this hand, you know, with five fingers and all the molecules and cells and atoms that, you know, are there. And let's sort of make that stand for the complexity of our lives, right? This is the complexity of human life. I mean, I can't be the only one in this room living a rather complex life. So that's the complexity of our lives. And one aspect of that, let's call it either like my ring or, you know, the nail on my pinky finger or something, that 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 sort of stands for my sin. Or maybe a better way to do it would say, there are atoms throughout all of my life that are sinful. But here's what we tend to think is that grace is like a heat-seeking missile, and it's only going for our sin. And that is a major, major misunderstanding of the grace of God. It is unmerited favor that I'm standing here breathing. 
It is unmerited favor that oil burns. It's unmerited favor that the world exists the way it does, that the cosmos is as it is. That is all unmerited favor. And unless we can really grasp that, that that God's grace is something like his action or his hand in the totality of our life, not merely aimed at our sin, but all of our lives, and especially its its, uh, capacity to transform us. So one of the big misunderstandings that I think all of us have is that we think that the doctrine of grace exists only to sort of challenge the notion of works. That, 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 that really grace is sort of a theological idea. It's something that these people 500 years ago in Europe cared about, but what does it have much to do with us today? Unless you think that grace does not stand opposed to effort, grace stands opposed to earning. But part of what's gone wrong in our sort of basic Christian psychology these days is if you were to think of... Um, a thermometer, uh, you know what I mean? Uh, one of those things they put on a wall when they're doing a fundraising campaign, you know, and it, you know, the, it goes up to $50, $100 a year. With me, can you picture that? Well, we're all aware that like a thermometer, if it had zero in the middle, negative numbers on the bottom, positive numbers on the top, we're all pretty clear that we come to Christ how? It, with a positive or a negative? We all come with demerits, right? We all come owing something. And, you know, with a punishment that is owed us, right? That kind of thing. So we're all pretty clear that we come to Christ below zero, and then those, those accounts in heaven, so to speak, get zeroed out. How? By the death of Christ, right? We just sang about it. Pretty much every Christian I know has a pretty solid understanding for how that happens. Kind of a pretty, you know, self-explanatory, transactional thing that happens somehow between me and Jesus so that my accounts in heaven get zeroed and God not ticked off at me anymore, and I get to go to heaven when I die. We're all pretty clear about that. But how does anybody go on from that? How do you move on in any sort of way? And that's where we all start getting worried about works. And that's what I'm saying is if you see grace only aimed at the negative part of that thermometer, you are left on your own, and you don't have to be there. So says David. So says Nathan. So says the psalmist. So says Jesus to that sinning lady. So says Paul to the Galatians. You don't have to be stuck there. There's a way of moving on. And the way in, grace, is the way on, which is why it's very important. This is why, Paul's, this is, why Paul is confronting Peter, by the way. If you are reading into that passage in Galatians that Peter and Paul are having an argument over the Reformed doctrine of grace, you're about 1,500 years out of phase. Did you catch that? (laughs) You can't picture Peter and Paul arguing about Luther and Calvin and the Reformers. That's a horrible, it's a big word for this. That's a horrible anachronism. It just means you are completely out of phase with time. What's happening there is very simple. The law is being put to bed, so to speak. Like a horse that it's done its job, it's being put to bed. Because the law was never meant to be like the California Penal Code or the California Motor Vehicle Code. When you read the term law, think God's guidance. Think teaching, think training. That's what the law was all about. The law was like a Tennessee walker. God's purposes, so if a Tennessee walker, you know that kind of horse? A Tennessee walker, if it represents God's purposes, what God's up to, kind of how he wants things done, the law was something that put us next to that Tennessee walker. 
so that we could learn to have its kind of gait, so that we could learn to walk properly like a horse is supposed to walk. That's what the law was for. But at one crucial point in their lives, um, it's, I, don't, I don't think of it. Maybe for us right now, it might have to do with economics or human sexuality. I mean, who knows? But the issue of their day was what do we do about the Jews and the Gentiles? Because the law says we can have nothing to do with Gentiles. So if we're to be faithfully Jewish, we can have nothing to do with them. But Jesus ate with sinners. He, led, he not only was with Gentiles, but he let Gentile prostitutes weep on his feet. I mean, what you have to picture is Jesus reclining around a table. And these sinners who are allowed to come into these parties, what was actually happening at this party was very something, was something very similar to what just was in the news this week. Did you all catch that uh, Rush Limbaugh invited Elton John to sing at whatever Rush's seventh wedding or whatever it is? I don't know, fourth, fifth, seventh, whatever Rush's deal is. But he invited Elton John to come sing at that. Did you hear the buzz about that? I mean, all the conservatives thought, oh my gosh, how can you have this gay man sing at your wedding? And all the gay people were like, um, you know, Elton's prostituting himself. So it's this little buzz, you know, unless you're online, you might not have saw. But there's a little online buzz about, you know, having Elton John at your party. Well, well, what used to happen in the old days is they didn't have bands or musicians. When you wanted to have sort of a proper social party and kick it up a little bit that said this is important, you didn't invite Sting or Elton John. You invited a famous teacher. So that's what this Pharisee's doing. He's just having a sort of socially acceptable party. So he invites Jesus. And so you have to picture Jesus reclining at the table, but the sinners, though they could sometimes be there, the outcast, they were never allowed around the table. So picture Jesus lying at a table, his head towards the table, his feet away from it, and others lying in the same way, and a woman standing away from the table, weeping at the thought, at the notion of her sins, and that this man is going around Galilee healing people and forgiving them of their sins. As she gets in touch with her own sins and the forgiveness that's in Jesus, she begins to weep so that she's literally raining tears on his feet. Can you all picture that? That's what's going on there. And so the people of Paul's day, they're stuck. They don't know what the heck to do. The law says that to be faithfully God's people means that we can have nothing to do with people who aren't us. But Jesus has come showing us this different way. And they're all finding their way into this new way. And it's very important that you see this. They, did just, they didn't just sort of arise out of the blue like a chick coming out of an egg or something. They had to walk through really difficult stuff. For instance, the Shema says there is one God. Right? The basic Jewish teaching of all time says there's one God. But now Jesus is here. So now are we dualists? And now Jesus says the Holy Spirit is God. So now are we tritheist? I mean, they had to work through really heavy stuff to figure out what it meant to follow Jesus, similar to what you and I have to follow through. Well, one of the things they were dealing most with is that our holy law says we must have nothing to do with outsiders. But Jesus comes, he has everything to do with outsiders. And in that, we find the grace of God being expressed and the forgiveness of sins. So what Paul's wrestling with with Peter, they're not having a discussion about our, um, um, Calvinism versus Arminianism. The discussion is, Peter, you've been on this trail with us, and you've not been living like a Jew. You've been living like a Gentile, meaning you've been hanging out with them. But as soon as these conservatives come from Jerusalem... You diss the Gentiles, and that's what Paul's mad at. Why? 
because it's not just dissing the Gentiles. It's not just a political or social mistake. It's a fundamental mistake. And that is you are missing the very heart of what's going on here. And that is radical forgiveness, radical grace, which leads to radical inclusion. That's the big deal that Paul's upset at. You cannot diss people like that. How can you do that knowing that you heard the story of Jesus and that sinner in Simon's house? You know that story as well as any of us. How can you now be acting in a way that's contrary to the master? That's the discussion. It, re- it literally has nothing to do. I mean, obviously, grace comes up in the context of that. But the conversation itself has all to do with how do we ap- actually apprehend with the whole complexity of our life, which means Samaritans and unfaithful Jews, and Gentiles who are God-seekers. We've got this very complex human, social, political life going on, and here comes grace like a heat-seeking missile. Well, what's it supposed to hit? And what Paul's saying is it's supposed to hit the totality of our lives, individually, family, socially, every aspect of your life, how you make decisions, your basic maleness, your basic femaleness. You could just go on and on however you might decide to to talk about the discrete little parts of your lives, grace is meant to aim to hit all of that. Why? Because grace is not just a remedy for sin. It's not just the bottom of that thermometer. Grace is not merely remedy. Grace is God's action in your life for all of transformation. And that's why it's so important that we get this. This is what, this is what Paul, or excuse me, this is what Nathan is wanting David to get. Yes, you're the man. Yes, you did something actually really wrong, quite awful, frankly, in taking this guy's basic pet and killing it. But again, as bad as that was, and as bad as obviously sleeping with Bathsheba was, obviously really bad, right? And obviously using the, Am- the Amorites, you know, uh, Israel's enemies, to kill Uriah is obviously really bad, And by the way, one of the things it teaches us for all of us trying to struggle with sin in our modern society is this. Everybody get this really carefully. Sin is never personal, merely. It's one of the biggest things going wrong in our society today. There's nothing wrong with me sitting in my bedroom and smoking dope. It's just me. And I'm not harming anybody. And by the way, if you want to know where that comes from, that comes from continental European liberal philosophy that just says the highest good, the highest way that we can be human is to make space for ourselves to do whatever it is as long as we're not harming someone else. And so we've all drunk that Kool-Aid for 500 years, and it's just been imbibed in our society so that it's almost completely unquestioned. But there is something wrong with you sitting in your bedroom smoking pot. If you were working, you could be contributing to your family. If you're working, you could be becoming a decent, better human being. Sin is never merely personal. It always has collateral damage, always. Uriah, in this case, gets killed. A baby dies. Bathsheba's family is probably a wreck. Uriah's family is definitely a wreck. There are soldiers who are also killed in that battle that kills Uriah. Sin is never merely personal. And I bring it up to say that one of the things that both Psalm 32 and the passage in Samuel teaches us is to, to what or against what backdrop do we think of sin? And it's never personal. It's always against the backdrop of God. It's always against the backdrop of that Tennessee walker that's trying to teach us a new gate a new way of being human. 
So when this, uh, this conversation arises then, it doesn't arise merely thinking about our sin, but it obviously includes our sin. But mostly what this story of grace and forgiveness teaches us is that when it comes to really dealing with sin, that it has to do with confession. And we'll end with this. Confession simply means, think of it this way, God, I agree. You know, when David is so harshly confronted, he's not harshly confronted, as I said, merely because of Bathsheba, Uriah, and all of it. You go, well, Todd, if it's not that, what is it? Let me suggest. It's rank abuse of power. It's David, look what I did for you. I made it easier for you to walk like me than I've made it for anybody. I would have given you anything, David. And what do you do? You take the power, the anointing, the centrality, the goodness, the kingship I've given you, and you abuse that power for yourself. So, so you know, the text, it says, if you look there, it says, you despised me. See, that gives you your reference for sin. It's not just, well, I can sit in my bedroom and smoke dope if I want. No, you despised me, God. And you broke the Ten Commandments, obviously, <laughs> adultery and murder. But can you hear, can you, hear uh, you know, somebody saying today, oh, no, God, it's not like that. I didn't, like, break the Ten Commandments. I just thought she was hot. You see what I mean? That, so the, 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 what's happening there is always this tendency to minimize sin by putting it in some other point of reference, and it can't be done. That's never the way out. The way out is Psalm 32. I agreed with you. I confessed my transgressions. I told you my iniquities. I listed my sins to you. I poured it all out before you. I made a clean breast of it. And as I did so, then that heat-seeking missile of grace then took care of my whole life, not merely my sin, but it changed me fundamentally as a man, as it did to David, when the Bible says of David that he ended up being the kind of man who served God in his generation, ended up taking his kingship and doing what was right before God and before the people who he was intending to serve. So here's how this whole thing happens of sin and grace. One of David's big, uh, not commands, one of his big ideas that he sets forward in the Psalms is he says, therefore, everyone who is godly, everyone who is seeking godliness, let them pray to you while God may be found. And what David is simply saying is whenever we have that feeling of sin or the knowledge of sin, we have that sense of being alienated from God, not walking beside that Tennessee walker and and doing it the way he's trying to guide us to do it. When we feel that conviction or that sort of disapproval from God, when we feel an inability to quit sinning on our own, where we feel stuck or in bondage or addicted, then, then these passages tell us that there's a remedy. And the remedy is entering in over and over and over again to a life of conversion, of confession. And confession, again, simply meaning, God, I agree with you. This is wrong, and it's wrong against you. It's not merely wrong against my wife or the person I work for. It's against you. Because when we make it personal like that, then reconciliation happens. And we don't feel alienated from God anymore, but we feel his forgiveness, acceptance. We feel entrance into his life. There's regeneration that happens, a new kind of life, a kind of deliverance that comes to us so that, so that what begins as a feeling of, <clears throat> my life's a little bit off track here. And some of you may feel that this morning in some area. My life's a bit off track here. And in that sense, I need conversion. I don't mean 
you know, accepting Christ for the first time. I mean, you're aware that there's something that's out of alignment. And what these stories are telling us this morning is that acceptance with God is possible through God's grace. There's an inward transformation of love and joy and peace that's possible. It's possible to find freedom from domination by sin. It's, fi- it's possible to find an ability to persevere in deeds of righteousness, both individually and in terms of social justice. And it's possible to find that kind of life that's beyond any natural talents or strengths that we have. And that power, our stories tell us this morning, is the power of the grace of God. But we'll never know that if we only see grace as against our sin. Grace is not against. Grace is for. It's for a kind of life that's empowered by the grace of God, and it includes forgiving that sin. Thank you for listening. For more information about Holy Trinity Church, please visit us online at www.myholytrinitychurch.com.